It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. Now it's been uh, budget week this week, when you think back of budgets at your time in the Treasury or as leader of the opposition, trauma. Uh, <laughs> why? Funnily enough, I was on a rival podcast this week. I just should be open with you. Um, it's the successor to Brexit cast called Newscast on the BBC. And I knew. I mean, I found out off social media rather than you. I'm always pleased. I, d- I don't consider them a rival podcast. No, but it's funny because I was thinking back to all the various budgets. And I remember the first ever budget that Gordon Brown did. He, he basically used to spend... I'd say 75% of his time writing the budget speech and 25% of the time maximum making the decisions about the budget. He was much more interested in the speech. He, he'd make want to make the big strategic decisions, but then he was not interested that much in the detail, which is not kind of what most people think about him. So he'd spend his time writing the speech with two-finger typing on a big screen. And basically, any time that you were not in his office contributing to the speech and trying to actually get on with the business of delivering the budget was in his view the fact that you were completely wasting your time and no doubt loafing around (laughs) but but i remember the first budget he gave he was due to walk from the treasury to the house of commons and he i don't know whether it still exists i don't think it does that you were the chancellor was given a budget broadcast, like just a two-camera, five-minute thing. And to be honest, it was always a bit of a nightmare, this this thing, because it was you'd have to try and get it done, and it would be done for that evening. And, of course, he didn't have time after the budget, so he'd have to do it before. And I remember him saying the opening line was something like, as I walked to the House of Commons today, I carried not the old budget box of the past, but a new one made by apprentices in Scotland or something. And so we recorded it. It was all done. And then there was some problem, which meant he couldn't walk from the Treasury to the House of Commons, number 11 Downing Street to the House of Commons. And I remember having to have a massive fight with the BBC to say they had to take this line out. (laughs) We had to find a way of taking this line out. They were like, well, we'll just leave it in. I was like, no, we cannot. And it was just all on me. We cannot leave this in. (laughs) I managed to get the line taken out, but I remember it was a total sort of trauma because we'd recorded it. We sort of forgot, you know, it wasn't the first thing on our minds. And I suddenly realised before it was due to go out, this was like, we've got to get this line out. Anyway, we did manage to get the line out. It is no wonder that you find it too painful to watch the thick of it when I hear stories like that. Well, you think it's a thick of it kind of story? It's just so many of those stories. It's absolutely that. Yeah. Un- unusually, I didn't watch the budget this year because I was in the middle of something else. But um, when I was reading the coverage, I came across which, at least to me, was a very surprising piece of information. Rishi Sunak isn't tall. 
Interesting. You obviously, you 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 know, you see him in Parliament, so you know he's not a tall man. Well, that's probably because you think of him as sort of powerful and dishy, so you think of him as tall. I, th- I think of him as tall, and he, he's only in fact 165 centimeters, which is five foot five. No judgment of this, of course. I myself am below average. I used to be average, and then the average went up. I'm 174, five foot eight. Um, but that was surprising information to me. Got some names of people. Um, yeah. Let me know if you think they are taller or shorter than Rishi Sunak. Yeah. Ronnie Barker. Is he dead, Ronnie Barker? Mm-hmm. The late Ronnie Barker. Taller. Yes, five foot seven. You know, it's an interesting thing here that mm. I think this is to do with Kahneman and Tversky. Um, you know, do you know this book, The Undoing Project by Michael Lewis? This has come up before yeah, I, think. I think this is i don't know which of the techniques it is but i think it's a sort of anchoring thing anchoring is the one you've mentioned before well is it anchoring i don't know but it's like you make me think of ronnie corbett you see, you see there's something about the fact that because ronnie barker was with ronnie corbett who's definitely short you know five foot one you, you're making me think it's really interesting isn't it mm. all right um otzi the Iceman, who is the earliest preserved human well, I think this is a trick. I think he was taller than the Ronnie uh, than Rishi Sunak. No, it wasn't a trick. You see, you thought I was doing a trick, but he's uh, five foot three. He was just t- two inches uh, shorter. Good quiz, this Napoleon. No, Napoleon was famously short, uh, shorter than Rishi Sunak. No, taller, five foot six. <sighs> Dustin Hoffman, shorter, taller, five foot six again. <sighs> Macaulay Culkin, taller. Yes, he's five foot seven, but you always think he's a child when obviously he, he carried on growing after yeah, Home Alone. Yeah. One more. Let's do Isaac Newton. Taller. Same height. Ah, yeah. trick question. Lower to the ground, thinking about gravity. Did Served him very well in the end. You, of course, are a tall man. How tall are you? Mm, I don't know. About six foot and a one, I think. Has it changed? It's strange to me that you don't know how tall you are. I never know. I'm sort of so. It's like it goes back to Celsius centigrade. You know what I mean? It's like I think it's six. But yeah, I never 180 something centimeters, and I think it's six foot one basically. My son is tall, and I don't know why, because neither my wife or uh, myself are. And I consider it some kind of achievement. I'm sure it'll level out as he gets older, but at the moment, he's the tallest kid in his class. Well, it probably won't level out. Do you not think? Well, he'll probably continue to be tall. I mean, I'm not saying he'll be sort of. Shaquille O'Neal, but I mean, I'd love it if I had an enormous son. I'd really feel seven foot. He could achieve things that I, I've never managed. Yao Ming, I, I would have loved to have been very, very tall and been a good basketball player. I'm not sure it's your height that's the problem. Mm, it's my lack of coordination. It could be that, yeah. Oh dear. All right, what are we, uh, what are we talking about this week? This week we're talking, Jeff, about a subject close, I think, to both of our hearts, which is access to parks and green space. Over the last year, we've been more reliant than ever on parks and other green spaces to exercise, meet others, and generally get out of the house. 42% of people say visiting green spaces has become more important to them during the pandemic. But there are deep inequalities in who has access to green space at home or near to where they live. Research from the Ramblers Association shows that low-income households and black, Asian, or minority ethnic households are considerably less likely to live near green spaces than others. We're going to be talking to Helen Griffiths from Fields in Trust and Beth Collier from Wild in the City about the importance of spending time in nature, the inequalities in accessing it, and how we can protect our green spaces. And we're also talking to Kate Ashbrook from the Open Spaces Society and indeed the Ramblers Association about the history of access to green spaces in the UK. 
we'll be asking her about the campaigns of the last few centuries to open up our green spaces, as well as what we should be doing going forward. And our cheerful person this week is broadcaster and author Stuart McConey. We're going to be talking to Stuart about his book, The Nanny State Made Me. He is also actually president of the uh, the Ramblers Association. So we are rambling away this week. So what's your reason to be cheerful? I might have a breaking reason to be cheerful, if you can just bear with me. I have just got a notification on Google Classroom that some homework I submitted on behalf of my son has been marked and the teacher has made a comment. I haven't read this. Shall we uh, shall we read it together and see if it is, in fact, a reason to be cheerful? I mean, this is this is like better than the Leisure Centre story. <laughs> yeah. Go on. In she real says, time. She says, what a super version of Snail and the Whale. I'm sure that your friends will enjoy looking at it next week. Well done, Eugene. I think you should explain. My son's homework has become a problem for me and not in the way that you would expect. Go on. Every few days there'll be a piece of homework which says, if you like, you can submit a video. And when I see that, I just think, oh, something to break up the boredom. And I turn into full-blown... Helicopter parent. So what happened yesterday, they read this book, Snail and the Whale. The homework was, can you give us an idea for a story with the characters, the snail and the whale? And Gene is just like goes on about Batman the whole time. And, you know, when I asked him, he just said, yeah, uh, Snail and the Whale go to Gotham City. I said, right, that's it. I sat down with a piece of paper. I coerced him into agreeing with me which rhymes were best. I then recorded him on my phone. I would say a line, then he'd repeat it of a story that I wrote using those rhymes. That was his involvement. I then went away, edited it all together, took all my bits out used green screen with puppets, sound effects, Batman logos, music. I was up till half past five this morning editing it. I haven't frozen. I'm just... <laughs> I thought the Zoom had frozen. Well, look, it shows great creativity. Do you think it's because you felt guilty about not doing your homework as a child and you're trying to make up for it? I mean, it's quite an interesting variation on the dog ate my homework. It's like the homework's going to be delivered but a generation late. <laughs> I mean, that is like late homework. Yeah, I think you're onto something. All right, uh, what's what's your reason to be cheerful? Mine sort of pales into significance, although it is actually school-related. We had my older son's uh, first secondary school parents' evening, and I don't know what your memories are of, of parents' evenings, but you know, mine is of sort of trailing around gyms and just generally feeling incredibly embarrassed by my parents. Well, of course, this was by necessity done on Zoom, and... You know, I think the main thing I just wanted to say was, it's just, I was just so incredibly impressed by the teachers and what what they've done, particularly during this pandemic, but more generally. Yeah, it's really brought it home to me, just what that job is, because it's popping up on an app, we can see when they're setting homework, and it can be like a Sunday night at 11 o'clock, they're doing the work for the week, or marking stuff out of hours, just being able to be there in a class, if your kids are doing Zoom classes, just you know your kids are going to school, but you don't really know what that looks like on the inside. And just seeing what teachers do and the level of commitment, I find it very humbling. And we were like talking to the art teacher and the art teacher was like, well, look, if you've ever got any issues on your art, you know, come and see me at lunchtime and we'll do some extra stuff at lunchtime if you want to go further. I was just thinking, God, this is amazing. I was just so, I was really bowled over by it. We were both bowled over by it. And did you get any tips on your art then? 
Or are you waiting till lunchtime? Yeah, I, I could do with tips on my... I mean, I've got a long and rather boring story about my art career, but I'll save it for another... It'll be like the Leisure Centre story. <laughs> save for another episode. Reasons to be Cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We are delighted to talk now to Kate Ashbrook, who is General Secretary of the Open Spaces Society, which was founded in 1865 to defend open spaces. And Ed was just very excited, as am I, in fact. We uh, Just before we started recording, we found out that with another hat on, you were chair of the Ramblers Association. That's right. Yes. So I'm everything walking, really, and outdoors. (laughs) I love a style. I love to go over a style. That's one of the great pleasures in life, I think. The pleasure of styles particularly is when they're the old-fashioned sort, you know, part of the landscape, the old stone styles, for instance, you get in the Yorkshire Dales. But styles can be a real problem nowadays because um, they are neglected. They are difficult, often difficult to climb. And people who are you know, getting older and children who are small and people who are arthritic have a real problem. And there are really too many styles in the countryside. We'd like to see them replaced uh, with gaps where there's no reason to have a barrier at all or or with gates what about kissing gates oh kissing gates are very nice aren't they and uh what's more they uh we can promote schemes in some parts of the country where people can donate a gate and have a little plaque on it in memory of a loved one or to celebrate their group or or you know whatever they want to celebrate uh so uh kissing gates provide that opportunity I'm really pleased you brought up Kissing Gates, Ed, because I think I really got off on the wrong foot with the styles, uh, Kate. I'm you did. Sorry for that. You've really saved the day by bringing up the Kissing Gates. I was trying Gates. to cover up your rambling faux pas, Jeff, actually. Kate, can you tell us about the Open Spaces Society? So it was set up in the mid-19th century. Was it set up as industrialization was becoming more prevalent? I'm guessing up until that point, you know, to, to some extent, outdoor space was open space yeah it was set up um really at the time at the end of the enclosure movement we had this long enclosure movement of the commons um so i'll go back a bit and just explain that common land is land that goes right back to the medieval times and before which is land where people have rights uh to graze animals or collect wood or dig peat all in connection with their own property so not commercial rights and those commons were enclosed by the parliamentary enclosures and the private enclosure acts um sort of right across um the 17th 18th centuries uh, the, in the middle of the 19th century uh the enclosures ended but by then uh commons and open spaces were very much being looked upon as places where uh for exploitation for industry taking gravel building and at the same time victorian people were beginning to get more mobile and going out and recognizing the benefits of fresh air so those two things kind of clashed and people became aware of their open spaces um so the Open Spaces Society was founded as the Commons Preservation Society, 1865. About the time Hampstead Heath was threatened with gravel extraction, Epping Forest, uh, commoners' rights were being challenged, Wimbledon Common. So the organisation did actually save all those places by arguing that the old commoners' rights um, to take wood, for instance, in Epping Forest, still existed and the commoners had a stake in the land. And so we we managed to save all those places and many more. Something I'm interested to talk to you about is the Kinder Scout Mass Trespass, which was in 1932. Can you uh, just tell us the story of that and maybe give us an idea of why it's such an important 
event when we think about access to green space? Well, the story really is that people working in uh, factories and industry in Manchester and Sheffield would look out of the window longingly and see through the hazy smoke, they'd see the dim outline of the Pennines and long to be there. And on a Sunday, they would go out and um, they just wanted to wander free, you know, free and harmlessly. But gamekeepers would challenge them. Uh, Grousemore owners would challenge them. And um, this built up to the extent that they decided that they were jolly well going to walk over Kinder Scout on the 24th of April, 1932. And um, the person who was supposed to be leading them didn't didn't come. But this little man, Benny Rothman, kind of took charge and a uh, young chap. And uh, he he led them. He led one lot over the, the moor and another lot um, came from the other side, from Sheffield. And there were clashes with gamekeepers. And the result was, in the end, that six of them were arrested and five of them were put in jail, including Benny Rothman. But, of course, now they're heroes. Now they are absolute heroes. But that didn't stop the trespassing. The trespassing continued. So let's move on then. Uh, You've told us the, the really interesting history up to before the Second World War. Talk to us, if you will, Kate, about the 1949 National Parks Act and other legislation in the post-war era and what that did. That was uh, the National Parks and Access to the Countryside Act 1949 was a very important piece of legislation. Um, It created the national parks, areas of outstanding natural beauty, national nature reserves, national long distance paths. And that was all really important. Probably the most important thing in many ways is that it set up what we call definitive maps of rights of way. Uh, So for the first time, all public paths had to be recorded. Before that, if you went for a walk and you found a problem, uh, you found a a difficult style, for instance, you would um, have to prove it was a highway before you could do anything about the problem. All paths, I should say, are highways, just like any road. The same laws apply. Very important. Um, So it created the definitive map. So we now see on the Ordnance Survey map the, the green and red dots and dashes, which show where we can go. Um, and that's all thanks to the definitive maps. And broadly, what are the developments that we've seen since that post-war legislation? As we think about our access to green spaces, countryside and so on, what, what's the sort of balance sheet since since that legislation uh, of the post-war of, of 1949? Okay, well, I mean, we had always wanted this um, right to roam. Uh, We did eventually get it um, in 2000, the Countryside and Rights of Way Act 2000, which was very much a campaign led by the Ramblers. I have to say I'm talking about England and Wales. Scotland has most wonderful legislation, the Land Reform Act 2003, which gives much greater freedom. But England and Wales, we got um, the Countryside and Rights of Way Act, which gives us the right to walk on all common land, which I mentioned earlier, which is land that's owned but others have rights on. Uh, and ma- land that was mapped as open country, mountain, moor, heath and down. Um, but that was all to do then with a mapping process. You didn't get the rights until the maps were done. And the maps are very incomplete. So it's 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 good, but it's not absolutely terrific. You know, the principle is very good because landowners can no longer say on mapped land, get off my land, um, which is great. But a lot of land wasn't mapped. We've also had the Marine and Coastal Access Act of 2009. And so we are seeing the um, opening of a path with adjoining access land all around the English coast. 
that's exciting being able to walk around the whole of the English coast and um, in Wales they've already got the Wales coast path which was opened in 2012 so you know things are progressing there uh, and that's good but when it comes to spaces close to people's homes I don't think the story is a good one really we're trying to get uh, the Ramblers and, and open spaces together are trying to get targets for access to green space in the Environment Bill, which is currently going through Parliament, but has got regrettably held up, despite the importance of it for um, combating the climate crisis. It's got very held up. But uh, we're wanting to see proper targets in there so that there's a real commitment from government, a real commitment from local authorities to provide good quality green space close to where people live. And of course, the elections on the 6th of May, particularly um, the mayoral elections for local and combined authorities, provide the opportunity for candidates to pledge to do something positive about that. And then we can hold them to it once we've got their pledges. So we're calling on uh, our members to get those pledges. I want to sort of take you to a world where there, where I'm not sure the concept of elections is very well understood, which is something on the podcast called the Jeffocracy, which is where Jeff is a supreme and benign ruler. But I, I think he's subject to elections in some broad sense, but uh, not sure how. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure quite how democratic um, it, it, it's going to be. But if he were to make you the... Secretary of State for open spaces or open spaces and rambling or open spaces, rambling and gates or, you know, whatever, you, whatever title you, uh, whatever title you wanted. What's the kind of first, you know, few things that you would demolish you would all styles? Yeah, what's the first, what's the first, what, what's, what would be your top of your list or near the top of your list? Well, I make sure that, that money that is, um, that, that the money that green spaces generate is actually put into green spaces, you know, um, and into creating good quality ones, um, creating new ones. I'd want to make sure that every building development had adequate green space for the public, you know, not just for the residents of that area, but, but proper green space. So I'd want to see all that. I'd want to see um, local authorities properly funded to uh, keep keep paths in order to create paths where paths are needed. Um, I want to see uh, it, the ag new agricultural funding, which is coming on stream, having a really strong um, element of providing public access, better public access. So, you know, I just want to see this wonderful, this utopia where everyone's thinking about public access, getting people out, ensuring that they can enjoy what's close to home and, and further afield. You know, public policy needs to be much more bringing people into it. Um, and involving people. Well, look, Kate Ashbrook, you are a brilliant advocate for both the Open Spaces Society and the Ramblers Association. Thank you so much for joining us. More power to your elbow as you go about your mission, including the controversial question, as we discover, of style. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you. It's been lovely talking to you. Now, to talk more about this really important issue of green spaces, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Helen Griffiths, who is Chief Executive of Fields in Trust, a charity that champions parks and green spaces, and Beth Collier, who is founder of Wild in the City, an organisation promoting well-being through access to nature. Thank you so much, both of you, Beth and Helen, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, Helen, let's start with, with with you. What what has COVID shown in your view, given the things that uh, 
Fields and Trust campaigns on. What has it shown about the importance of access to green spaces? We've really seen how much people value their local parks and green spaces. We've obviously seen a huge increase in use of local parks and green spaces. And I think that the focus that we have as an organisation and the work that the charity does to protect parks and green spaces, it's really kind of been demonstrated in the past year just how important they are. And I think that when we, we look at the response to the to the pandemic and how much those parks and green spaces were truly a, a daily lifeline for people, that opportunity to be able to, you know, to get out of the house and to take exercise. Parks and green spaces were absolutely crucial. They were pivotal to the response to the pandemic. And I think that everybody has recognised how much how much worse the experience of the past year would have been without that you know without that local space and do we have data on who's had access to green spaces in this pandemic and who hasn't and how that has you know how it's affected different people differently there was a lot of talk, wasn't there, at the beginning of the at the beginning of the pandemic about everybody being in it together and it being, you know, and it being a great leveler. And of course, that's that's not the case at all. It's obviously been a, a terrible experience for so many people. But in terms of how lockdown restrictions affect you, if you are, um, you know, at home homeschooling several small children in a small flat without any access to, to outdoor space, that's very different to, you know, people who've got that private outdoor space. Um, and the role of parks and green spaces for them has been, you know, has been really different. So I think um, there's really interesting um, stats came out from ONS last year about how many people don't have access to a private garden in the UK. One in eight people don't have access to a private garden. And you're much less likely to have access to a garden if you are in a lower socioeconomic group or if you're from a Bain community. And so that really kind of tallies with our own research, which tells us that both of those communities value parks and green spaces so much more and that it's really important that good quality, accessible green space is close to people where, you know, where they need to be able to to use it. Beth, you're a nature-allied psychotherapist. What are the benefits of access to nature for our well-being? Perhaps you can explain what what you do in 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 your role and and both generally but also specifically during the pandemic nature allied psychotherapy is a modality of therapy that takes place in natural settings and it's not just a, an opportunity to explore our human social relationships but also to explore our relationship with the natural world and then in acknowledgement that we do have a relationship with nature just as we do with people we sometimes overlook the formative importance of of space and place as well and i think as helen's described many people have discovered or rediscovered the value of nature to our lives to our well-being and nature provides us what we call within psychotherapy a secure base um, helping us to feel that we belong that we're accepted and and giving us a sense of, of confidence in our place in the world. And what led you to set up Wild in the City? Um, I grew up in the countryside on a small holding and, and was lucky that I had a very immersive childhood. Later in life, I moved into cities for education and, and for work and, and began to see what disconnection looks like um, for many people living in urban areas and thought there might be something I could offer in terms of um, how to make nature a meaningful part of our, our daily lives. Can, can you just tell us a little bit more about that, about the 
the the way I, I'm, I'm not expecting a free uh, therapy session or anything <laughs> but if you know what what can we reset in our brains maybe the the next time we're out in a, a green space that over and above just being in the green space um would would be good for say anxiety or general state of mind first of all i guess i'd pick up on the idea of resetting your brain because i think nature's a wonderful space to to allow us to come back into our bodies uh, we tend to be sort of uh, too much in our heads in city environments uh, the city provides lots of stresses uh, that replicate our fight or flight response or that trigger our fight or flight response whether that's the loud noises lots of different stimuli demanding our attention it can feel like overload to our brain and, and put us into a, a position of feeling heightened with adrenaline um, we tend to park our emotions when we're in that kind of place it's a survival state and do what we have to do just to function and, and keep going and I think a lot of us in lockdown can relate to feeling overwhelmed and just really struggling to, to be able to just get the, the basics covered Going into nature, the impact nature has on our physiology is much more attuned to the, the psychological state of living or thriving rather than surviving, which the city evokes. Um, it calms our heart rate, uh, makes us feel um, a sense of, of belonging to something much bigger than ourselves, so we feel less isolated, which we tend to feel in, in cities. Um, so that there's something about really embodying um, nature rather than sort of attuning with, with your head, with your mind, which I think we tend to overuse, not just in cities but in the west in general we're going to uh, dig into some actual numbers in a minute but i was wondering if there's much difference in cities across the uk so i moved to london 20 years ago my wife moved here from new york about a decade ago and we're both always struck by how much green space there is pretty much Everywhere you go, you can find something like there's a, a little garden with vegetable patches uh, on it in an alley through to onto the main street near us. Um, and you know, certainly when I was growing up uh, in the town where I grew up, there were a couple of parks, one of which was pretty neglected. In Manchester, there are some great parks, but certainly not the amount of green space I'm now accustomed to in London. Is is London very different to the other cities around the country in, in terms of what's available to people? I think London is particularly green for a capital city. Over 47% of London is green. And if you count the blue places, then 49.5% of the capital uh, is green and blue. So we are very lucky that there, there's a very large number of quality uh, green spaces. Um, but we still need more. Um, I think cities throughout the UK um, have got incredible green spaces, um, but there are some communities that live in areas with a deficiency of access, and I think that became really clear in lockdown. Um, Helen's organisation did some wonderful research showing that there are still 2.6 million of us um, that don't have a green space within 10 minutes' walk from where we live. And Helen mentioned, you know, the inequalities that have shown up in this. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about that, the inequalities that exist in access to green space and how it particularly affects people of colour? Yeah, so in general, in terms of uh, green spaces and open countryside in the UK, uh, people of colour are much less present than, than white people. Um, the environmental field, unfortunately, has interpreted this as sort of a general lack of interest, but that masks quite a long process of disenfranchisement, uh, where for many people of colour, there's an apprehension about going into more remote and open 
places uh, because there's a fear about how we're going to be received uh, that there's a fear or an experience of, of hostile um, encounters uh, and that racism is an issue in how comfortable people feel to, to venture off um, that is something that's changing but there is a conversation to be had about um, who feels safe where um, in the country are there other factors at play in that as well yeah, so there's a historical legacy um, about earlier communities encountering a lot of hostilities in cities, uh, you know, uh, landlords with signs saying no blacks, no dogs, no Irish. This was a kind of response that we were getting on migration in areas of the, the country where there are larger numbers of people of colour in cities gathering together for, um, for, for networks to establish lives and a, a sense of safety in numbers. And then going off into the countryside starts to feel more intimidating because there are fewer people of colour and, and more visibility uh, with our ethnicity. Helen, Fields and Trust campaigns to protect green spaces. Can you explain why the future of our green spaces are under threat? Fields and Trust's work concentrates very much on trying to future-proof the green spaces that we've got now, um, as well as advocating for better provision of green infrastructure going forward. The reason that it's so important that we future-proof those spaces is because they are vulnerable to to development. Um, We know that parks and green spaces, playing fields, all kinds of different um, kind of sizes and typologies of green space can be lost to um, development because they don't have um, that statutory provision. Um, There is no requirement for parks and green spaces to be provided, um, which kind of puts them in a really vulnerable position, both in terms of development and also in terms of being at the bottom of the of the pile in terms of funding requirements for you know for any local authority that's dealing with a really you know challenging um, budgetary scenario then they've obviously got requirements that they need to fulfill and parks and green spaces can end up in a bit of a cycle of decline where they're not being properly funded and that can kind of further their you know the vulnerability of their state going forward. We really promote the need for people to be within a 10 minute walk of a park or green space. And what we'd love to see is that everybody in the UK is within a 10 minute walk of a protected park or green space. Let's talk to both of you about some of the ways in which we can help communities to protect green spaces. Uh, Helen, just starting with you, um, talk to us about your deeds of dedication work. Sure. So we protect parks and green spaces individually um, on uh, using a legal contract called a deed of dedication. So we work with landowners across the UK. Um, we protect 3,000 parks um, and we protect those in perpetuity um, by working with local authorities and you know in town and parish councils to make sure that their future is, is protected. Because if we look at population projections, then we know that that will impact on where there's even more pressure on you know particular parks and, and green spaces because you know we don't make a huge amount more of, of these spaces we're you know we're very reliant on on the ones that we have that we have now how much of this is a data is there a data issue here in other words if we said let look, every person in the country should be within you know five minutes ten minutes of a decent green space i mean how far away are we from knowing whether that's the extent to which that is or isn't the case at the moment and 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 is that would that be a kind of sensible aim 
I think that would be a brilliant aim. I think if we could set out an aim that said that everybody should be within a 10 minute walk of a good quality protected green space and they would be of all different shapes and sizes offering all kinds of different facilities because, you know, you'd have to be recognising the fact that not everything would be, you know, an enormous, um, you know, flagship park, then that would set out a framework for everyone having equitable access to good quality green space that was there for generations to come. And it would be something that could be worked with with local authorities on an individual basis to make sure we could look at what that provision is. And that's what we do through our through our green space index um, is the is the data that we use to kind of analyse provision of parks and green spaces on a local basis to be able to make recommendations about where it would be really important to protect spaces because provision is poor and there's very little protection or the communities that live in those particular areas would really benefit from greater activation of those spaces. And that's another thing that protecting them can really help to, to bring about is greater community involvement in activation in an asset that people know is going to be there for a long time. And how close are we, Helen, to that with the Green Space Index and how much further do we have to go? I think with the evolution of the index, then um, we could get to a position of having a much more detailed view, you know, really relatively quickly. But what we're trying to do now is drill down and look at what that looks like at, you know, at, at ward level and then compare that local authority by local authority so that you can start to set a standard of what needs to be what needs to be achieved. It's really striking this from what both you're saying, because the minute you know who's got access and who doesn't to a good green space you know, it's so much easier to make the case, isn't it, about what needs to change? Yeah, because there are measures for deficiency of access, but they, they tend to be localised rather than a national framework. So, for example, the London plan uh, determines or details its own uh, criteria for deficiency of access, which is related to how far it takes to get to the, the space, uh, but also the, the quality of wildlife value of, of the, the green space. Somewhere like uh, the borough I live in, in Croydon, uh, gives quite a clear clear example of the differentials of, of community access. So Croydon is 50.7% uh, BAME population um, and there's a huge discrepancy between the north of the borough and the south of the borough. In the northwest, 70% of the borough is BAME and most areas of the north have a huge deficiency of access uh, to nature. Really? So a lot of them, uh, sort of 80-90% Bensham Manor Ward, for example, a deficiency of access to nature. And that's contrasted to the south of the borough, which is um, a much higher number of uh, white people and a huge, huge amount of quality uh, green space. And the difference that leads into in terms of health outcomes is uh, a difference of 10.6 years in life expectancy for men. It's huge. Um, and, and it very it's it's very visible. It's not a obviously a quantifiable measure, but just if you were to stand in the north and, and look around you and, and the atmosphere and the feel and the concrete versus coming to the south with these beautiful wide horizons, lots of lovely green spaces, it, it, it's it's very apparent the different quality of life uh, through the lack of nature in the north of the borough, uh, which is very densely packed with a, a much higher number of, of ethnic minorities. We have a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy, which is fantasy utopia. At least that's what Jeff claims. If he was to make you kind of both the joint ministers for green spaces, what what what's the kind of things you would want be wanting uh, to do? Beth, Beth, let's start with you. What 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 do you think are the are the kind of changes you'd want to see to 
to, to, to deal with some of the problems you've identified? In, in terms of our, our green settings and, and uh, experiences like COVID is to understand the benefit of nature to, to emotional, spiritual health as much as our physical and economic well-being and to see natural settings as vital as part of a public health response not just a crisis but to, to daily living uh, nature really does provide us with the conditions for optimum health many of our cities full of stresses uh, actually lower and lessen our health so we need to see the city as a habitat and understand what we require of that habitat uh, to live healthily just as we're concerned about the hedgehog the the, the stickleback and, and what these species need for their best health and uh, and doing what we can to restore environments uh, when stresses are introduced, we need to consider ourselves as a species and consider what we need from our environment to thrive. And at the moment, there's a toleration of cities which harm our health, uh, which is really quite dysfunctional. Um, so we need to reintroduce nature uh, simply as a public health response so that we're able to live uh, in city spaces. And, and if you think, Beth, about the communities that, that you're talking about in particular that feel excluded unwelcome and so on in green spaces what what do you think about the, the in terms of green spaces themselves would make the biggest difference to to communities that are still excluded from those benefits um, I think ease of access. Um, but as I was trying to explain, for many people not using natural spaces, it isn't necessarily because they have strong feelings about nature, but it's more about how they've been made to feel by other humans, which is where the honest conversation about how we perceive nature, who belongs there, who owns it, who controls it, is an important part of the work of making everyone feel they belong. Um, and, and then there are many great... Uh, uh, BAME organisations working in this area that don't get to access funds to be able to work within communities to encourage uh, greater engagement with with nature. Great. And and Helen, over to you, just in this Jeffocracy question, just what's the kind of priorities that you would have? I think the first thing that we would want to do is is kind of recognise parks and green spaces um, and the role that they've played in the in the past year to really try and heighten everybody's awareness about how important those spaces are, um, how crucial they are to to communities, and the fact that we need to celebrate them and protect them. So celebrating them, raising awareness around the importance of them, encouraging more activity to take place um, of all different kinds in those spaces. To to support our health and, and well-being and you know crucially to to recognize how those parks and green spaces um, need to be funded um, beyond the current funding structure well look it's been a fascinating conversation you're both doing incredibly important work uh, helen and beth thank you so much for joining us thank thanks you so much. much thank you well how did you enjoy our little ramble well i, I really enjoyed it um I understand that this isn't the case for everybody living within London, but I think I've become conditioned to living in a city which does have all this green space. And, you know, especially during the pandemic, being out and about and seeing people using it has, has left me a little bit unaware, really, of... Um, the inequalities in it. In some ways, we're not bad as a country, but then obviously that's not true for everybody. I wonder if this falls into something that 
comes up with some regularity. What responsibility does the state have for thinking about what a good life is, rather than how much money it can either make or knock off other bills by introducing a measure? Really interesting. That's really uh, that's quite profound. What you're full saying, of, full of profound um, thoughts, me. I, I was sort of slightly more simplistic. I think I I, I sort of thought. I mean, I'm going to make myself like sound like a, the nerd that I am here, but I, I thought we need to improve the data so we know who has access and who doesn't. Because the minute we know who is within 10 minutes of a decent green space and who isn't, you've then got a platform to campaign on. You know, everybody should have access to a decent green space within walking distance of them. And it should be like a basic yeah, yeah, right yeah, yeah. of citizenship almost. You know what I mean? And then... But but then what's, I think, really interesting is you can then create the, the sort of pressure through that information. You can then create the pressure to say, look, this should be our clear, you know, aim. And and, 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 it, and it kind of, you know, it feeds into so many other things. And, and we've seen during the pandemic how important it is. Email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast. 45 well, for our cheerful person this week, I'm really delighted to speak to somebody who's been a, a great favourite radio broadcaster of mine for a long time and uh, has written some, well, music journalism is when I first came across him, but uh, some brilliant books over the years as well. Stuart McConey, hello. Thank you, Jeff. Hello. How are you? You all right? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really well. We're going to talk about the, the book, The Nanny State Made mm-hmm. Me, which is out in paperback um but before we get on to that we've been talking about um green spaces and the the benefits of access to green spaces and coincidentally you are the president of the rambling association i am i was asked to do it i'm delighted to be asked to do it and i have just been asked if i'd like to carry on doing it which i am very much keen on that and I think when they asked me to, I think you've been talking to Kate Ashbrook, who is one of the lovely people who asked me to do it. Um, I, I think part of the rationale was that they knew that I wrote books that were vaguely with a small p political and they knew that I had kind of a, a particular take on this, which was that to sort of reconnect rambling with its radical roots in a way. Yeah, yeah, because we were, we were talking about Kinder Scout with Kate. Well, yes. So the roots of the organ, the roots uh, are in that that fateful, you know, the Kinder Scout Trespass, Benny Rothman et al. in uh, nineteen thirty-two. And well, I'm not saying that that's the sort of thing we should be doing on a weekly basis. I just wanted to 
sort of reconnect the, the roots of the organisation. It's a campaigning organisation. Its roots are not in cosy compliance, but rather in dissent, you know. You're rebranding rambling, is that right? Stuart? Well, to a, to, a, to a degree, and also on a, more, on a serious level as well, I know I'd like to see, we'd, we'd all like to see the, the people of different classes and ethnicities and yeah, ages. definitely. So we're going to talk about the book, The Nanny State Made Me, which, I mean, it slightly oversimplifies it co- to, to call it a love letter to the welfare state. Uh, something that I was thinking about as, as I was reading it was just, is our relationship with certain institutions, the NHS is the obvious one, and, and you write about the uh, Olympic opening ceremony in 2012, is our relationship with an institution like the NHS unique to the UK or if, say, for example, you're, you're in a, a Nordic country, do you think that there is that same, I don't know, emotional connection or is the emotional right. connection to the state, is it almost that, is, is what we're getting in, in some sense uh, a nostalgia for a time when the, the state provided that kind of thing and the NHS is in fact, you know, the, the sort of last bastion of that? That's a really, really good question, and one that I sort of talk about towards the end of the book when I go spend some time in Norway with my Norwegian friends. I think we have this really complicated relationship with the state, um, in that it's like a relationship with a parent or even a nanny, if you're the person who had a nanny, um, in that some people clearly have this weird love-hate relationship with it. I mean, I think it's really odd that someone who would campaign a lot against the nanny state would be Jacob Rees-Mogg, who, <laughs> who, who has a nanny and talks about her all the time. I didn't have a nanny. I mean, the, the jokey subtext of the book or the jokey, jokey sort of epithet at the beginning of the book is the people who complain about the nanny state are the people who had nannies. So I, I, that's what I tried to say that but I think, so you've either got people, I guess, like me, you could be accused of being hugely romantic about post-1945 and, uh, you know, and, and all the things that I grew up with, your free specs and your free orange juice and your libraries and all that. I, I, I could be accused of being hopelessly romantic about it. But I don't think we're the only people who have... I think we might be the only people who have that very curious emotional attachment, either for or against, either as, either as an, a much-loved parent or an angry matron that you're trying to get rid of. But the Norwegians say, for instance... They take the state for granted. They take its role in their lives absolutely for granted without any emotional attachment. So one of the bits in my book is when I talk about, I talk with my friend Anne Hilden Nesset, who's a Norwegian journalist. She talks about, she said when she lived in London for a while and her friends in North London were moving house to get into different, you know, catchments for schools. And she said, that really baffled me. She said, that would be like in Norway, moving house to get a better water supply. <laughs> you know, the, the, you turn the tap on, and it comes out of the tap, yeah. and it's the same. And, and am I right in thinking, Stuart, that the um, book was inspired originally by uh, a lunch you had with Tony Benn? That set the seed of the idea. I interviewed Tony at the top of the post office tower, which the GPT, which of course he 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 commissioned back in the nineteen sixties uh, when he was in the in the Labour cabinet under Wilson, and um, he and he, we'd been talking about it for a while, and then the PR guy came over and said, um, "Hey, guys." Can't help noticing that you're using the phrase post office tower and GPO tower. It hasn't been that for a long time. It's the BT tower now. So if you could, <laughs> you could say that, that would that would be great. And Tony just fixed him with his stir and said, I commissioned the building of this tower. It was built. It was built by the Ministry of Works. 
you know, I, I go on this, about this in the books. They say it was designed and built by men long dead who, from an organisation that no longer exists. And he said it was paid for from the taxes of the British people. It was paid for with their taxes. Margaret Thatcher stole it from them and gave it to you when it was not hers to give. It belongs to those people down there. So I'll sort of call it what I want, mate. And he sort of slunk away, defeated into the shadows. And Tony looked at me and sort of winked. And it just, that and a few other things, I thought, it's about time someone wrote a kind of unashamed love letter to all these enormously unfashionable things and tried to correct this narrative we have been sold for 50 Talk years. Talk us through some of the places you visited for the book, which which are sort of form the basis of the, of if you like, the, the, the love letter, like like the uh, Trafford Park Hospital and, and well, other places. So it's an autobiographical sketch, really. It's an autobiographical look. It takes the phases of my life from being born to going to school to going to libraries to going to, to being on the dole and it and it does that so i go i go visit trafford hospital the first hospital that the birthplace of the nhs opened by um in 1948 by nye bevan i went to all kinds of places i went to britain's oldest public golf course on merseyside i, w- I went to britain's oldest public that, that library. was ama- that was amazing to me that because golf you think of as, as elitist and i know that's yeah. not the case in in some countries but reading the book municipal golf was huge at one stage but no municipal golf courses it's in it's over on the Merseyside. municipal and um, birkenhead the world's first public park on which central park yes. is modeled this, i mean it, just to give you a, in case you think this book sounds at all dry in it Stuart goes to uh, meet the, uh, <laughs> the the guy from half man half biscuit <laughs> and finds out that central park in new york was yeah. based on birkenhead park I met up with people who could talk me through particular aspects of like that. So Nigel from Half Man Half Biscuit, Britain's greatest living satirist, he he he's very into local history. So he taught me through the history of Birkenhead Park. So Catelyn Moran talks me through the libraries that she grew up in. As she says, I pretty much grew up in a library. She read every book in Wolverhampton Library, she thinks. And I said to her, what, even the ones on, like, Feldspar and geology? She said, particularly those. <laughs> it's just incredibly inspiring to talk to you, Stuart. I mean, it reminds me of this phrase of the US politician Barney Frank, who said, who said something like, government is the name we give to the things we do together. And I yes. thought there's a very, you know what I mean? Sometimes government, and governments make terrible mistakes and can treat people badly, but it can feel a very distant, you know, bureaucratic thing that's very separate from us. But actually... For a lot of things, it's the, it's the name we give to the things we choose to do together, like, you know, building public parks or public hospitals or schools yeah, or libraries. Yes, absolutely. Catelyn Moran uses, Catelyn uses a very good phrase in the book. She says, uh, when I interviewed her, she says, the welfare state is love made institutional. And, and that's absolutely true. Mm. It is at its basic level. It is fellow feeling made institutional. But when, when you when you, when you sort of give the laundry list of institutions like that, and in the book it's anything from you know municipal baths to the BBC to mm-hmm. signing on to the NHS, it's it's in a way it's like a patchwork of of identity. I'm reading yeah. that and I'm thinking because I, I sometimes struggle with uh, an idea of national identity or what I think it is or what I think it means. But all that stuff knitted together definitely gives you a sense of one, I think. I think so. I think if you, you know, Danny Boyle and Frank Cultural Bush used it so brilliantly in the opening of the, the Olympics. But I do think there is at some level a pride in, I would say the NHS, I would even say the BBC. Once upon a time, that is a very complicated relationship now. 
but I would say at one point there was the the fact that you know these things said something about Britishness. The the book is fantastic. I'm glad I wasn't the only one who found myself teary when I visited um, Paul McCartney's childhood home. Oh God, I know, I know it. Was I was really unexpected. I sat on, in on the I sat in his bedroom in that little room, and I suddenly thought the world was changed in this little room, yeah. in this little house, paid for by the state for the workers for the for the for the work. I, I you know I, I can. Romanticise the English working class forever as we want to. But I thought, paid for by the paid for for a state worker. His mum was a midwife, and I thought, and from this little room, this modest little house, the world was changed. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, I thought this is going to be terrible. I'm going to start crying. Yeah. You know? No, I had the same. Yeah. I had the same thought. There was this this idealism in the in yeah. the council housing and what they thought society could be, and then. That led to this family moving into this estate, which had just been built, and we all we all know what happened, yeah. and it's it's quite overwhelming. The book is the nanny state made me Stuart McConey. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Oh, in the outro, and I wanted to congratulate you. Yeah, you've got this far in the episode without mentioning my mustache once. Do you think I've been mustache shaming you? I, I think it's it's been a very interesting uh, development to you. Well, I but it's interesting you are you're not letting the scraggly bits of the beard grow back. Well, I actually I, this is why I bring it up actually because I just did that before we started recording today. I did a bit of a, a, a shave or a trim. Now you've got no beard. No, here's my question: because I've been a bearded man for decades, I am not used to shaving. I don't wear an aftershave. I don't really like the smell of aftershave. So what do you do? do you, is there something you splash on your face to stop it stinging? Is that what aftershave does? I think it serves a purpose to do with your pores. It, like, stings a little bit initially and then it does some... I thought it smells I th- something I think it has another purpose beyond scent. I feel like aftershave is something out of the 1950s, isn't it? Yeah, or 70s. So you were never an old spice man. My father used to use one of those brushes to sort of brush the lather on his face and then and then he would shave and then he i think he would wear off oh like with one of the um sweeney todd style razors no it wasn't sweeney todd razor but anyway i've never used aftershave in my life me either no i don't even like a i don't even like a scented deodorant now moisturizer that's another story (laughs) what's your current regime well i'm i i met (laughs) I met a dermatologist. That's the way to begin a story. Whilst cold water swimming. uh, No, not whilst cold water swimming. He said that he, whenever, all year round, he wears SPF 50, you know, to protect your face from the UV rays. So that's that's really, that's what I mainly meant. Mm. I, I try and do it in the evening as well, but that's a bit sort of... There's a particular brand. I won't mention the name of the brand. And I, but and I, there's this thing called retinol. I think it is right. called, which you, which you, it's like a very small percentage retinol. It's some kind of cream supposed to be anti-aging. Um, but I'm not so. Good. I'm a bit. I'm a bit sort of. What's the word? Infrequent on that. I'm a bit lapsed when it comes to that. I feel like I'm digging myself. Not at all. In whatever there. you're doing is working very well for you. You are a year older than Wilfred Bramble when he first played Steptoe. And you definitely look a bit younger than that. Are you serious? Yeah. How do you know that fact? Because my f- 
best friend it was best man at my wedding turned 50 this week wilfred bramble was was the oldest was the older guy yeah yeah he was he was old steptoe yeah he was, uh, i was the old man i was tr- trying to think okay who's an old man uh, here's one victor meldrew yeah in one foot in the grave you're still three years younger than he was when he first started playing that character i don't believe it <laughs> of, course, of course. Uh right, I'd like to thank our guests Helen Griffiths, uh Beth Collier, Kate Ashbrook. And thanks again to the brilliant Stuart McConey. His book is out in paperback and it's called The Nanny State Made Me. Emma Corsham produces our podcast. You would not believe if you heard the raw material she has to work with week in, week out, you you wouldn't believe what she manages to to conjure up for you it's really quite something all the research and the guests are sorted out by joel pierce with a little backup from his friends jack jeffrey and joe kenyon at goldfish this point in proceedings uh, we always like to do a big shout out to left foot forward gail lofthouse is our announcer ed seed composed the music james deacon made our eye dance and our artwork was designed by henry cole he's been rambler jeff he's been kissing gate ed And these have been Reasons to be Cheerful. Cheerful.